you suffer from numbness, tingling, burning, or pain in your feet and legs? It could be caused by something as simple and common as a B1 deficiency. This is Dr. Ronald Hoppen with a solution for low B1. Zobria. Zobria is a safe, effective, and clinically proven nutritional supplement containing a high-potency bioactive form of vitamin B1, which has been shown to reverse symptoms caused by low B1 with no side effects. Low B1 causes your nerve cells to stop functioning properly, resulting in numbness, tingling, burning, and pain in the feet and legs. It may also contribute to forgetfulness, loss of mental focus, fatigue, and loss of appetite. Restoring proper B1 levels has been shown to improve the functioning of these nerve cells. You can get Zobria risk-free by going to zobria.com. That's zobria.com and get 20% off with coupon code Hoffman at checkout. You'll also receive free shipping on all of your store orders. That's zobria.com. Vitamin B1 perfected. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Today's guest is going to talk to us about natural approaches to autoimmunity, which is a big subject. Uh, I recently read an article on autoimmunity, and it actually comprises 72 diseases, some of, you, some of which uh, you've heard about, uh, multiple sclerosis, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, ulcerative colitis. Uh, and a lot of other itises, but there's some diseases uh, that are very obscure that uh, I think I spent a couple of minutes on in medical school. Uh, there's a whole raft of these, and they're very prevalent. And we're going to talk about uh, a, a natural perspective on autoimmunity. Today's guest is Dr. Angela Luchterhand. She's a, uh, a doctor of chiropractic, a DC, and a functional medicine physician, uh, specializing in immune dysfunction, uh, she has an interesting background. Uh, she served with the Peace Corps in Mali, West Africa. Uh, and then she got her doctorate from Palmer College of Chiropractic, which is perhaps the number one uh, chiropractic uh, institution in the United States. Uh, she's currently uh, leveraging her expertise in functional medicine as the director of product and program marketing at Orthomolecular Products. Orthomolecular, uh, one of the brands that uh, we really like and rely upon, uh, a physician uh, quality uh, company that uh, also offers its products via full script, so it's accessible to many of you listeners. So, uh, so Angela, welcome to Intelligent Medicine. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. So uh, define this, the scope of the problem. Uh, how prevalent are autoimmune diseases? And it seems to me that they're on the rise from, from my clinical practice. I would agree. And I think the numbers are fuzzy, like most things, right? When we give definitions to something, we sort of categorize things with similar concepts or underlying etiology to fit within that bucket. But the reality is, is the more we learn about other conditions, having similar foundational principles to them, all of a sudden, they start falling into the same bucket. I would say the last time I looked at a statistic, it was about 50 million Americans, about 78% of them are women due to some of the hormonal influences that that are part of autoimmunity. And like you said, we're talking about conditions that people have heard of as autoimmune conditions like 
Hashimoto's, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, but you're starting to see another wave of conditions now that we know more about them falling into that bucket, things like eczema, maybe even Alzheimer's or endometriosis, Mm -hmm. these conditions that have very similar pathophysiology to them, but we have not identified potentially autoantibodies. So therefore, they have not classically been classified as autoimmune. And then there are perhaps tens of millions of Americans who are auditioning for the part. They haven't gotten it yet. They have uh, some of the hallmarks of autoimmunity. Perhaps they have an elevated uh, ANA, anti-nuclear antibody. Uh, maybe they have uh, signs of inflammation, an elevated uh, SED rate or C-reactive protein. They feel achy. They feel tired. Uh, but they don't f- formally fit into a category like lupus or Sjogren's disease. They, they haven't uh, gotten the prize yet of, a, of a, arrived at a diagnosis. That's correct. I think that we have standardization in the testing for certain autoimmune conditions, but not so much for others. There are some functional medicine uh, labs that run specific antibody tests, like an entire panel for autoantibodies to every tissue in your body sort of Mm -hmm. thing. And they're things that people have never heard of, right? And we know that they can start developing about 10 years prior for the particular system involved to have enough dysfunction or degradation of the tissue to actually see the function in that organ decline. So for example, Hashimoto's, you may have autoantibodies in your system, never be checked for them, and they could be there for 10 years before your thyroid is actually damaged enough to have TSH or, you know, T3, T4 actually be impacted where someone would go, hey, let's check your TPO antibodies. Exactly. You know, I I would say that it's possibly a minority of people who have, you know, if they get a comprehensive panel, they have no trace of autoimmunity. Most people have, you know, perhaps a a scintilla of autoimmunity. Perhaps it's their thyroid or perhaps uh, it's, uh, you know, something around uh, the anti-nuclear antibodies, which are associated with uh, certain collagen vascular diseases. Uh, And, uh, you know, so so I think These days, these things are very, very prevalent. So are there any theories as to why uh, there's an uptick in diagnosis of autoimmunity? You have a perspective because uh, you served in Mali, West Africa, where uh, there's a lot of infectious disease. The sanitation uh, standards are uh, less rigid than here in the U.S., Uh, but uh, there's less in the way of autoimmunity there, isn't there? Yeah, I think that was one of my eye-opening moments between graduating undergraduate and moving on to getting my doctorate was this stint in Africa where I was serving very much in public health. It was all about sanitation, um, some infant mortality issues and things of that nature. But while I was there, I had a good friend who was in his 20s at that time who had gotten diagnosed with cancer for the second time. And it upon arriving at like that phone call, that moment in time where I was like, this is strange because the country I just came from has the most abundant healthcare opportunities, the most advanced, you know, options in terms of healthcare. And yet they're dying of things that are robbing them of their quality of life, these chronic diseases of cancer, autoimmunity, et cetera. And Then I'd look around at a place that has no running water or electricity. And yes, there may be an accident that would require some type of surgical intervention that's not 
uh, available there that would cause a death or maybe some infectious disease that would take someone's life because they don't have access to antibiotics. But the reality was, is there was virtually no chronic disease, Mm. right? And so the moment I came back to the United States, I said, yes, you know, immunology was a big deal and it was a big part of what I was doing there, but in a very different lens, right? It was very infectious, very um, innate immune system. How do we fight off something? It wasn't really in the adaptive immune system, which is regulating immunity in a more long-term perspective. Those are usually the ones that are robbing people of their quality of life. So when I got back, I, I decided I'm, I don't live in Mali anymore. I live in the United States and mm-hmm. I have to be a chronic disease physician and obviously went through school to get my doctorate. And there was a heavy focus on the influence of neurology and chronic disease. Um, but when I got out in, into practice and people were filling out their intake paperwork, when you go to the chiropractor, you're not often thinking about going to see the chiropractor for your autoimmune disease, even though I practiced functional medicine at that time too. And every single one of them was checking boxes for immunosuppressants or the fact that they were diagnosed with an autoimmune disease or that they had a family history because there is a genetic component to it, although Mm -hmm. I don't think that's as big of a role as most people think. And that sort of escalated the fact that I really need to be an autoimmune expert. My first case was a lupus case and a magazine sort of picked it up. And uh, when she went into remission, it sort of spread like wildfire fire in a small town that uh, this can actually be reversed. Most of these patients have been told it's a life sentence and it'll just continue to get worse. Well, let's take that uh, patient as an example. Uh, What are some of the factors that might push people over the edge? Perhaps they have a genetic predisposition. Perhaps they're a woman who is more predisposed because of hormonal stuff. Uh, Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that might uh, be risk factors for developing autoimmunity in the USA, where it's so prevalent? Mm -hmm. I would say chronic disease in general, I take a very systematic approach to, in general, there's either a sufficiency that you need to create or a toxicity that you need to remove. When we're looking at autoimmunity, I would say there's three main buckets, one of which is your genetic predisposition, which you can't do anything about, but usually you have some indication that it's there based on either your family history or maybe potentially you've done some type of um, genetic sequencing, you have a trigger. So this is where a lot of people fall into, I had an infection and post-infection, I developed an autoimmune disease later, uh, post-pregnancy, which is a huge hormonal you know, influx of, of, or changes that can sometimes be the trigger for people. Sometimes it's a really stressful event. Mm -hmm. I would say that unless someone is in the middle of an active infection, usually even the trigger has passed, right? But then you've got this one variable that is consistent among everybody, and that is hyperpermeability of membranes. And I often talk about it in terms of leaky gut or intestinal hyperpermeability. But as we learn more and more, this could be hyperpermeability of any barrier being your skin, your airways, etc. But we talk about it mostly in the gut. Or, or leaky leaky brain, the, the, yeah. the, the, yeah. uh, the blood brain barrier uh, is, yeah. is an object of intense speculation and research among people studying uh, neurological diseases, you know, and we know that there's a, a gut brain connection, you know, what happens in the gut sometimes uh, impacts uh, the brain in Parkinson's disease, perhaps also in Alzheimer's disease and so on. 
exactly. celiac patients uh, develop brain manifestations. And, uh, you know, generally when you have an autoimmune condition, uh, say in lupus, uh, there can be brain involvement, but there also could be just general depression, you know, sort of lack of energy, vitality, fibromyalgia type symptoms in people with autoimmunity. Absolutely. And I think the more that we know about how barriers function, the more we realize that many barriers function in similar ways. So many people are testing for something called zonulin uh, to regulate tight junctions in the gut. But when you realize that the same exact junction, um, you know, anatomy works in the blood brain barrier, you realize that that influx of zonulin or the increase in zonulin can also cause leaky brain, which is where you get the whole leaky gut, leaky brain idea. Wow, that uh, all seems connected. Uh, so uh, when it comes to uh, toxins in the environment, is there evidence that, you know, some of the, you know, 60 or 75,000 uh, industrial chemicals that are now unleashed in the American populace has an impact on uh, the immune system and pushes us more towards an autoimmune state? Yeah, I would say toxins work in many different ways, some of which can just be in a toxic manner from exposure. Some can be endocrine disruptors, so it can have an impact on hormonal balance, which can then be predisposed or influence someone's immune system. Um, they can also attach themselves to tissue, which then your immune system recognizes it as a foreign thing or something it needs to react to when really some of the sequence then that it's reacting to is your own tissue, which is this whole idea of, um, you know, molecular mimicry being similar amino acid sequences or protein sequences to your own tissue as such things like bacteria or whatever, but sometimes toxins can play a role in that. And obviously you've got the ones like people are familiar with in terms of glyphosate and whatnot that are very detrimental to the microbiome. And when you think about the influence and health of the gut and the immune system, you just cannot overlook the fact that when you ingest things that are sprayed with pesticides or have influence in a negative way on the microbiome, you're also having a negative impact in barrier function, which is one of the main principles of reversing an autoimmune disease. So, so the thought is that uh, leaky gut that develops mm -hmm. for whatever reason, you know, poor diet, food intolerances, uh, the use, excessive use of antibiotics, uh, perhaps uh, uh, acid blocking medications, some medications have an impact on the gut, that this allows the passage of these tiny molecules, they leak into the bloodstream, they then invoke this molecular mimicry, the body thinks they're the enemy, attacks them, but then there's collateral damage because the body, while attacking them, may attack critical organs, whether it be the joints, could be the kidneys, it could be, uh, in some cases, the heart, the lungs, and so on and so on. Yeah, I mean, foundationally speaking, all living things are made up of proteins and all proteins are made up of amino acids. And there's only about 20 amino acids and there's only so many ways that you can sequence those amino acids together to create sort of a pattern. And a way that the immune system recognizes those patterns in an efficient way is to not sequence the entire thing, but just a section of it. And so when you think about the idea that bacteria or food is made up the same, made up of the same amino acids as your own tissue, you can see how that 
um, confusion can sometimes get out of control. And there's a very, you know, controlled mechanism from what should stay outside the body and what should stay inside the body. And when you have leakiness in the tight junctions between your gut cells, then you have things falling through directly into the bloodstream on the other side of that barrier that should never be there. And oftentimes they're things that haven't been broken down. And so they're large, larger complexes can get through if the gut is leaky. If the gut isn't overly leaky, then things stay in the gut like they should and you poop them out. So I think the most classic and relatable um, scenario is food sensitivities. Mm -hmm. Everybody mm -hmm. that comes to my office has been to another doctor that has tested them for food sensitivities. And they say, Dr. Angela, I'm trying to avoid these hundred foods that I have um, an immune reaction to. And the reality there is that that's what you're seeing. You're not actually allergic to those foods. You're seeing the abundance of food proteins making it into the bloodstream and they mm -hmm. should never be there. And your mm -hmm. immune system very, you know, intelligently says this shouldn't be here. So let's produce an antibody against it. And, and that's what you're testing for with food sensitivities. So, so that that's not a classic uh allergy uh no. it's uh it's the result of uh, a different immune mechanism that mm -hmm. can be more more dangerous and profound uh i guess celiac disease is an example of that because celiac disease uh is a, an autoimmune phenomenon and what's interesting about celiac disease is that it's accompanied by uh, other autoimmune phenomena in other words if you've got celiac you have a higher risk of having uh, autoimmune thyroid problems, and many other types of autoimmune disease. Yes, and that's going to be consistent for any autoimmune disease. Celiac has probably been the most studied, but the reality is, is they come in triplets usually. And the reason is because no one typically specializes in autoimmunity per se. If you get funneled into the traditional healthcare system, what they're going to do is funnel whatever organ mm -hmm. is being impacted to that specialist. So if it's rheumatoid, obviously you're going to the rheumatologist. If it's psoriasis, you're going to the dermatologist. If it's, um, you know, ulcerative colitis, you're going to the gastroenterologist. And they will manage the symptoms for that system, but they're usually not treating the reason why it developed. So therefore it's open playing field for another autoimmune disease or another tissue to be impacted. And it's not until someone really turns off the reason the immune system is hyperactive that you actually get resolution. So you often see people with two, three before the time that they pass away. I don't want to step on the, on the third rail of uh, this current pandemic, but the concern around vaccines is that they, they do stimulate the immune system and they also introduce uh, foreign proteins or foreign uh, RNA and DNA, depending on the vaccine, uh, which mm -hmm. may uh, have a molecular mimicry type effect. And, uh, rarely, unfortunately, you know, uh, we do see some autoimmune, uh, reactions to vaccines. And, you know, some people speculate that in some susceptible individuals, uh, vaccination may be one of the triggers. Yeah, I think that's complex. So I don't know if you're familiar with a recent study that's been done by both Elroy and Aristo Bajdani, but they tested the cross reactivity of the COVID virus to human proteins. And mm -hmm. they found that the closest connection was actually mitochondrial um, tissue. So therefore, 
some of the long hauler symptoms may be due to this sort right. of idea. And, of and it applies equally to the disease because one could say, well, you know, don't take the vaccine. Okay, well, then if you don't take the vaccine, you might get the disease, which clearly introduces a lot of viral protein uh, into the system, which, you know, uh, can and it, it's known that viruses can be a trigger of autoimmunity. It's actually been speculated for MS, yes. for example. I, I we're not there yet, but I do think that at some point we will have a very definitive list. You see, we see patterns, and we're starting to make connections. But like I said, there's certain amino acid sequences to specific infections, whether they be viral or bacterial, that are now. Um, being associated very heavily with a specific type of autoimmune disease later down the line. So in those types of scenarios, it's not as much what proteins got in through barrier function. It's more like, did your immune system have resolution? Um, did it go back to identifying and reacting normally to infections? And if not, then we can see some of that residual effect. Yeah, I guess... Uh the uh, the metaphor for this is that uh, your body should react appropriately to infections, but it's a little bit like when uh, uh, the bank robbers get into the bank and then the police arrive and then a, a you know, gunfight ensues and innocent bystanders get killed. That's what's happening in essentially in autoimmunity is that the innocent bystanders are the tissues of various parts of your body as your immune system fights off a, a perceived threat, a real or perceived threat. Yes. And when you think about what we do in a standard American lifestyle, you can very much understand then how someone is being bombarded constantly. You know, the people robbing the bank just never go away. You're eating two, three, sometimes upward of five meals a day, maybe even more than that, breathing in or ingesting chemicals. So it's a constant um, lifestyle impact that didn't exist before and often doesn't exist in third world countries. So even though you do see things in Mali, um, like where I lived, that have infectious consequence, it's it's not so much of a chronic disease impact. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, this is a good way to tee off our discussion for about solutions, natural solutions for uh, autoimmune problems. Uh, we'll cover that in part two. Uh, Dr. Angela Luchterhand uh, is uh, the director of product and program marketing at Orthomolecular Products. And in part two, she's going to give us some insights about how uh, the natural products uh, industry uh, is addressing some of the fundamental ways that we can support our immune system in autoimmunity. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.